It's Sunday morning. Time for the great outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio, and thank you for joining me on this Sunday morning in January. Got a number of things to talk about this morning. The first is just when we think we know a lot about Mother Nature and birds and migrations, we realize we really don't know that much at all. This year would be a perfect example of what you have to call an anomaly in migrations, but which has even the top bird migration specialists in the continent scratching their heads. We essentially did not have the major bird movement of migrating birds south until almost the 10th of January when this very cold weather came down from the Arctic covering Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, obviously the Dakotas. You heard about the Iowa caucuses and how cold it was. This migration, this this major move of birds, was six weeks to eight weeks later than normal. That is a profound time period when you consider about how narrow the window is for birds to migrate south in the fall. And across America, birders were saying, we haven't seen any blackbirds, we haven't seen any starlings, much less southern states saying we haven't seen any waterfowl. Lots of places saying we don't have any Canada geese. Um, It was totally bizarre, and it had led a number of scientists to believe that perhaps bird flu, or avian flu as it's called, was much more severe than had been anticipated. I reported a few weeks ago about a really significant bird flu outbreak in the Great Salt Lake in early December with tens of thousands of of waterfowl and other birds preparing to be sick with bird flu. And the thought was maybe it's really been much, much worse. And these birds simply weren't up to making the migration and they perished by by the millions. If that were the case, they're likely in today's world with all the communications and everything we have. There likely would have been reports of massive die-offs of birds. People would have seen birds dead on highways. You would have seen birds dead on sidewalks. Farmers would have seen birds dead in their fields. This didn't occur. What did occur was that around the 10th of January, the epic migration occurred. And it began about a week before across the continent with the migration of starlings, which of course are not even native to North America, and blackbirds, and they migrated south by the millions. Following them was a very, very large push of waterfowl, a push that, as I said a moment ago, usually takes place in, in, in the first week of December at the very latest, and here we were at the end of the first week in January when this, when the epic or they call it the Grand Passage, took place. In nobody's memory, has it ever taken place in January before, talking to biologists across the country, no one has any kind of recorded records of this in January. It was the big push. And what was really ironic about it, there were reports of snow geese and sandhill cranes in northern Rocky Mountain states 
moving south. These are birds that often go south in October and November. It was so mild this fall on the prairies and so little snow across the entire country. These birds were scattered over tens of thousands of square miles. The prairies are a region of 300,000 square miles, and the birds were literally scattered across all the way to Alaska. And so when they came, they came in tremendous volume, and they are still coming. That's, that's one of the things that has so many people confused is, or scratching their heads, who think we know all about migrations, the birds are still coming. It's almost as though they didn't migrate this year at all, except in a big push we had in, in, in late October, early November, and now they're coming in tremendous numbers. The great news is bird flu didn't kill them. The avian flu did not have the kind of impact that some were fearing it might as these skies were, were basically empty. Now we know the birds are here. What we also now understand is credible power of agriculture if we don't have snow on the ground for birds to stay north as far as they possibly can. And that is the phenomena that is changing all the time. Birds would rather shorten their migration than have an elongated migration. And as long as there is food available and as long as there is suitable habitat for them to roost, whether it's songbirds and trees feeding on berries, whether it's waterfowl needing open water and feeding in grain, as long as that is there, what is becoming apparent is these birds are not in any hurry to migrate south. The idea that they migrate south on the time of timing of daylight photosynthesis is is very much true, but, but things are changing. So for th- those of you who love birds, this year is either an anomaly like we have never seen before, or it could be the beginning of a trend. I would offer it's an anomaly. Only becomes a trend if we have several years running of virtually no snow as we've had across the northern third of the United States and all the way up into Canada. For that to happen year after year seems highly, highly unlikely. So maybe what we've seen is once in a generation for humans event where there was just so little snow and the birds didn't migrate until they absolutely had to. The other thing we're going to see now is as the days are getting longer. The birds will not stay south long. They will turn around at the earliest opportunity and begin to work their way north. That's how they survived. The magic of migrations is something that even though we think we understand it, we've got microchips and we've got all these things in birds now and we think we know what happens, goes to prove that we really, at the end of the day, every year is different. And this year was extraordinarily different coast to coast in the migration of birds. I'll be back in just a moment with much more on the Great Outdoors show. And when I do, I'm going to talk a bit about predators and prey and a phenomenal evolution that's taking place uh, across the country, really. And I'm also going to talk about the Bureau of Land Management and, and some of their practices to do with recreational vehicles and what is increasingly becoming a major scarring of the American Western landscape. And if I have time, I also will talk a little bit about the uh, upcoming uh, general election. We're, we're heavy into primary season. I'm waiting for the word conservation to be used. Maybe some of you have heard it. Um, we don't seem to, we seem to be 
Lost in the Wilderness. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America. First, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. Hiking, camping, and hunting, it's all an adventure in the great outdoors, but nature can be tough. You need to be ready for anything and everything. Chevy Silverado is built to handle the toughest conditions and get you everywhere you want to go worry-free. Silverado's designed to handle the big jobs. It's built for the great outdoors. With over 13,000 pounds of towing capacity and trailering sway control, Silverado can haul the biggest loads on the roughest roads and keep you cool as a Sunday drive. With eight available cameras and up to 14 different views, it can spot trouble before it gets to you. That's peace of mind. And when you're ready for the backcountry, Chevy Silverado 1500 ZR2 owns the off-road. You name it, we run over it. No wonder it's Motor Trend's 2023 four-wheeler pickup truck of the year. So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and check out a Chevy Silverado. It's freedom to explore the great outdoors. It's Charlie Potter and the great outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the great outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN radio. Thank you for joining me. And if you've been with me, I'm moving now to a subject that has the attention of a lot of people. And it's not something that happened overnight, but it is something that's evolving to the point where Suddenly, a lot of individuals are paying attention, and that is this notion that two things are happening with birds of prey and animals of prey. That is, they are keying in on areas where people are hunting, and they are keying in, in fact, on hunters. So I'll start with birds of prey, hawks, eagles, owls to a less extent, but certainly Hawks and eagles and other raptors seemingly, increasingly, as their numbers are increasing, seeming to be increasingly attracted to areas where hunting is taking place. There, I have two firsthand experiences in the last month that demonstrate to me just how much their behavior is changing. This is in the case of red-tailed hawks. I was duck hunting. The moment we got out of the truck and put out the decoys, a hawk started to circle our decoys. A few minutes later, a duck was shot. And before the black lab could go and retrieve the duck, that red-tailed hawk had been in a tree nearby. I don't know exactly where. I didn't see it. When the duck hit the ground, the red-tailed hawk flew out of the tree and came mock speed straight to where that duck had hit the ground. The lab was going out. One of the individuals I was with had the presence of mind just before the, the hawk hit the duck and carried it away to shoot his gun in the air. And the hawk flared at the last instant and flew off. The dog brought back the duck. When it got to the blind, we looked up, and that hawk was hovering over where that mallard drake had been laying moments ago. And for the next half an hour, that hawk did not leave that location of where we were hunting. It kept circling and circling and circling. And you can imagine what that did for the duck hunting to have a hawk circling over your decoys for half an hour until it finally left, realizing that, that the, the meal it thought it had, wasn't, it had was not there. The next day, 
a different location in the same general area, broad daylight, we get out of the car, we walk to where we're going to hunt. The moment we arrive at where we're going to hunt, we see eagles circling high in the air over us. Decoys are out. The exact same thing happened, again, with a different red-tailed hawk. A duck was shot before the dog could get there. The red-tailed hawk tried to grab it. We shot the gun in the air again to spook it away. The dog retrieved it, and for the next 15 or 20 minutes, that red-tailed hawk continued to look for that bird. Hunters are reporting this over and over again across America. Ten years ago, I would have been astounded to hear someone tell me these kind of stories. They are now commonplace. Any number of shooting preserves for quite a while have been commenting on how when they release the birds into the wild, how the hawks follow the trucks out into the fields where those releases are going to be made. They have learned to identify the trucks that carry birds. Part of the issue is we have so many more raptors, so many more birds of prey. But there is no question, pheasant hunting in South Dakota, the hawks have learned to identify people wearing orange and shotgun blasts with food. And it is no longer in many, many places when you're hunting. And the Illinois River is a great example with the bald eagles. You shoot a, you shoot a duck and you, the shotgun noise scares the ducks away, does not scare the bald eagle away. And the bald eagle is waiting to see if that duck is retrieved. And if it's not, it's going to get that duck. Three instances this fall on a farm, hunters shot ducks and eagles carried them away. And they, they shot them and they didn't immediately retrieve it because they were out in the open in a cornfield. And three times eagles came and carried those birds away before the hunters could get out and retrieve those birds. They let them sit for a few minutes. Eagles took them. It goes to show how adaptive birds are and what they can do in adjusting to human behavior. Eagles are one thing. Hawks are one thing. Grizzly bears are entirely different. And in the time I have left today, buckle your seatbelts if you're driving. Otherwise, if you're sitting, just imagine this. In the Rocky Mountains of the West, where grizzly bear populations have, have expanded enormously, particularly in Montana, where there are just a great number of grizzly bears, the grizzlies have started to follow the pack trains of horses, of elk and deer hunters, who head off into the mountains, particularly elk hunters, who head off into the mountains to hunt elk. And a very good friend of mine said he has stopped archery hunting for elk in, in Montana because it's so dangerous. So you're sitting there with a bow during rut, and you are calling up a great big bull elk, you hope, or even a small bull elk. You're trying to sound like a cow elk or a bull that wants to fight. And instead, what you get is you get a grizzly bear coming to you. This individual said, I won't do it anymore. I don't have a firearm. You're not allowed to have a firearm except for a pistol in self-defense. And here I am trying to attract an elk. And the grizzly bear knows that that call is, a, is, is part of, is, is now tied to a hunter. And stories across outfitters in the West are of the, by the, before they can go and get on a carcass of an elk that they have shot, let's say it's a 250, 300 yard shot, the gun goes off and the first thing they see is a grizzly bear. The grizzlies have been following them 
at night when, when these outfitters tie up their horses, grizzly bears are now circling around the camps. And during the day, grizzly bears are in plain sight of the horses, following them, because they know there's going to be a dead animal at the end of the day, and that is going to be their meal. It's, a, it's just a, a phenomenal change in the behavior of animals, the adaptability of animals. The ultimate predator, the grizzly bear, has realized that hunters are its meal ticket. The carcasses of elk, antelope, deer in the American West are always going to be there after a hunter shoots, and the bears have now realized that, so they follow the hunting parties. That's disturbing enough. They get to the, they get to the game before the hunters can get to the game. That's unbelievable. The third thing is when then hunters are, are are cleaning the game, here comes a grizzly bear, and the grizzly bear wants that elk on the ground. Hunters are fleeing, leaving. There's not a chance of scaring the bear away. It's, it's a meal in front of it. So this is the adaptability of nature. It's a profoundly different um, situation than we had years ago. It also speaks to the abundance of birds of prey and to the abundance of grizzly bears, the abundance of mountain lions. Everything in nature changes. So in this January, I thought you'd find it interesting to hear the what I am hearing with uh, hunters in the field, not just in the West, but across the country, encountering birds of prey and predators while they're hunting because they have learned, those animals and birds have learned that hunters actually are providing food for them. Thanks so much for listening. I didn't get a chance to get to what I want to talk about next week, which is the Bureau of Land Management and how they manage lands or maybe don't manage lands and maybe what could change. And then I do want to talk a little bit about the upcoming Super Tuesday primary and, and conservation issues. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a great week in the great outdoors. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.